and welcome to Escaping Kerberos, the podcast where we rewatch, reminisce, and review everything Doctor Who from 2005 to present. My name is Rich, and I'm joined by someone who you'll kiss once and should immediately look like a melted version of herself. It's Amy. You're so rude to me. I am. Yeah, yeah, but you can't like sit there and be shocked at this point that I do that. Like, I'm it's, not. A couple of times you've been nice to me. <laughs> I mean, last time I called you my fiance because that's the case, but. Otherwise, I'm just going to slag you off. I mean, that's just that's how our relationship. Anyone who knows us in person knows that that's how our relationship works. That's we fine. just slag each other off. That's that's <laughs> just how it goes. Welcome to the Shakespeare Code, episode two of series three. Martha Jones's first sort of uh, deeper foray into the TARDIS, mm-hmm. and we've ended back in what is it, 1599? Yes, 1599. Mm-hmm. Lan Landad. And we're getting chased by sexy Shakespeare and a sexy witch. Oi, oi. Chasing around sexy Martha and sexy David. So I, I guess just we're a just... a whole big bag of sexy. Big bag of sexy. <laughs> and yeah, that's we're just going to get the simping out of the way first because, yeah, yeah, it's it's what we do here. It is. So... I honestly, I'm in this position, like, last week we just went on such a big tangent about all sorts of different things. Um, yeah. that I'm like I feel like there's something else we need to talk about first before we talk about the actual episode itself but I, I apart from talking about Flux there isn't really much else to talk about because mm. we don't talk about Flux on this yeah, podcast because yeah. that's 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 Modern <laughs> Who if you want to find out what, our, what well, at least what my thoughts are on Modern Who you can go to my YouTube channel just search for my name and you should find me pulling YouTube thumbnail faces next to pictures of Jodie Whittaker look at that's that cross promotion yeah, look at me go. I can cross-promote <laughs> all I like because everything we do is ours now and it's yeah, great. Buzzing. And it's wonderful. No, and I mean, we don't really want to talk about Flux because I feel like if we start talking about modern who, then we're going to get super confused for our audiences we love, we have if we missed start about around. What? We'd have literally missed 10 series of Escaping Cestabras to start talking about Flux. Yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> Whoops. Not yet, anyway. But- no, no, no. Maybe in like we, three years' time when we eventually finish the podcast, it'll be like <laughs> Yeah, up. God. Yeah. And then imagine that. Eventually, Escaping Castebras will be a live, like, on the day kind of thing. But then well, what would I do hope. first? Would I, would, I do, would I do my video review first or would I do Escaping Castebras first? I'd probably do no, my video do review, review first. do the review first. And then we do escaping because we shoot escaping Cerberus the next day, for example. Yeah. Because, but that's that is a long way down the line. Hopefully, by then Russell will be back and everything will I'm be great. I'm pretty cer- I'm pretty certain by the time we get through ten series of Doctor Who on escaping Cerberus that Russell will be in. I mean, yeah, if we manage to stick to this weekly, <laughs> then we'd be well away. But but we, we don't we don't because <laughs> never. Yeah, and thankfully, you know, as I've said, you guys don't ever get on to us about it and we very much appreciate that but anyway let's talk about the shakespeare code the shakespeare code the shakespeare code and honestly the first thing about this episode that i'd forgotten even happened which was something that we started talking about when we were watching this was the fact that martha references the color of her skin almost immediately and i i had in my head i'm like i'm gonna bring this up in the podcast if she doesn't but she did mention the fact obviously martha is a black character Mm-hmm. Traveling back to 1599, man, I'm sure things weren't great for for people of color back in the day. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know my specifics of, uh, uh, of black history in the UK in the you know the the 16th century. Je ne sais pas, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I assume that they you know they didn't have it all good. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain I'm well, right. Well, I'm pretty but... sure the fact that she says are they going to cart me off to slavery. Kind that of probably gives you a bit of context. Contextualizes yeah. the kind of era that we're like in for this episode, but I don't know enough about Black History um, because do uh, schools teach that? Lol, ha. Um, no. So I don't remember what I learned in history at school. Neither do I. <laughs> all I all I remember is I had a moderately fit teacher for history in my first sort of two years of school. I had a fit geography teacher who, strangely enough, looked a lot like David Tennant. Anyway. <laughs> well. <laughs> but um, yeah. Skin colour. Yeah, that was it. I'm thinking about my old history teacher. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Martha brings this up straight away and goes, you know, am I going to get carted away and whatnot? And 
as I said, wasn't expecting that or I don't remember that being sort of mentioned because it's such a passing thing. It's it's a, a contextual question that I'm sure people who are aware of things like that, obviously back in 2007 when this aired, the 7th of April, 2007. Ooh, we're in um, 2007 we, now. We probably weren't all that aware of sort of, you know... Uh, no, I mean, we were 12. What, what's the word? Yeah, exactly. I've been trying to think of the prejudice. word. Um, prejudice. Prejudice. Uh, Discrimination. Just That's the word. Discrimination. Yeah. I was going to say in diversity. I don't know why that completely... No. I don't know why that left me. Racial discrimination back in that back in that time because you know we were twelve. Well, know. exactly. We were. I mean, I mean, I don't. I can't speak for you, Amy, but I was lucky enough to have grown up with people that never had that come to the forefront when I was at school. We um, had people uh, of color at school, and nothing yeah. ever happened. I so. don't think I've ever like witnessed racial discrimination firsthand. Like, which is obviously a very good thing very lucky um, position to be in to be honest but, with things. uh yeah no so i never really like i think we've just been we raised by it. good people that you know never sort of we never believed that people of color were any different to us so therefore when she asked the question as an adult you can kind of sit there and be like i understand why uh, i have to yeah. ask this question because you're kind of putting it forwards in an era where slavery was clearly a thing um so yeah it kind of like you said it kind of contextualizes it but also for the adults watching it basically kind of like you said they brush over it a little bit but then to be fair they do come back to it later in the episode a few times when Shakespeare well they they mention kind of obviously Martha's skin color skin and color. he does he does make obviously <laughs> it doesn't fully lean into it but there are things said that I wouldn't say you wouldn't get away with, but they're very much sort of diluted um, yeah. replacements for words that could have been used. Oh, um, very much so. <laughs> it's like saying, oh, um, fiddlesticks or frick instead of, mm-hmm. you know, them those words. Yeah. It's basically the same, same kind of thing. But yeah, brushing over that was interesting. And obviously the fact that when it cuts to the Globe Theatre, you do see black people in the crowd. And it's like... Obviously, nowadays, people don't... Well, I say people. Um, usually, those who are uh, more swung towards the right or would like things to be represented as they were um, mm-hmm. would normally turn around and be like, yeah, this isn't right. You know, in a if I had to compare it to something that I'm more involved in in that regard, things like video games, when they were showing off things like Call of Duty and Battlefield, it's like, look, here's a woman with a prosthetic arm on the battlefields of World War Two, And everyone kind of goes... That wouldn't no. happen. Yeah, that wouldn't <laughs> happen. Um, black soldiers were present, but obviously probably not as much as they're represented in video games nowadays. I mean, so it's like people look like, at it and go, no, nah, that's not right. I'm all for representation, obviously, because, you know, representation is an incredible, amazing thing. And for people who see themselves in people in the media, it really does have the power to change people's like lives and perceptions and stuff. But I feel like if you're doing something that is critically time specific, so like World War One or World War Two, then you need to portray it as it was, which was basically all white men because they were the people who were drafted into war. Like that's not to say that representation shouldn't be a thing because it absolutely should. But sometimes it's just there's a not, time and a place. If you're going for something historically accurate, then you should make it historically accurate. Yeah. Like, but yeah. Doctor Who has Doctor Who has, has touched upon it, but it's never fully lent into it. I mean, I say that I'm telling a lie. Um, Rosa, when Ryan gets slapped yeah. by that white man, uh-huh. um, and then also something I mentioned, I forgot, I forgot about that when we were watching that. But I said to Amy during the episode, I said Thin Ice when Bill gets sort of racially profiled by that by that bloke, and the Doctor just waltzes up and smacks him one. Fair yeah. enough. Like that's I mean, normally as that's as far as they go in Doctor Who, and. Again, this is. I sincerely doubt people who think Doctor Who is overly woke won't be listening to this podcast, but that's another argument as to why it's like, this isn't anything new in Doctor Who. This is something they've always been aware of. Yeah, that's what and I was going to say. Even down to, um, for example, uh, when the when Martha and the Doctor are stood watching the play right at the beginning and she points out the fact that obviously they're men dressed up as women because, you know, women didn't perform back then. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, she says, "Oh, you know, there's men dressed as women." In and uh, the doctor says, "Like, oh, London never changes." 
<laughs> and I see that's 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 Russell just like it's that's such Russell, a Russell through joke, and through. isn't it? Yeah, I'm looking forward to that humour coming back. Yeah, me I, too. I really am. That sort of really, I... it's not even like uh, I say inflammatory. It's not. Um, it's not necessarily boundary pushing. It's not really risque. It's just no. it's just humor at this point in time. Mm-hmm. It's never meant in bad taste because it, it's coming from Russell well, T Davies. Well, I was going to say, isn't Russell part of the LGBT? Yeah, he's a gay man himself. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind. Of, oh, bollocks! My phone. Amy. Well. Sorry, sorry. What are you like? Sorry. This is why we blokes always have our phones on silent. Sorry. <laughs> um. That's the point. Qu- question for you guys in, in listening. I'll put it on Twitter at Castapod. Do you have your phone on silent all the time like me? No. <laughs> I set a ringtone. I set tones for everything, but I never hear them because it's never switched on. Weirdo. Anyway, um, I've lost my point. I've totally lost. This is why my you put point. your phone on silent, Amy. What? Russell T Davies, about? part That's of LGBT himself. Um, a lot of people are expecting that when he comes back to doctor who that it's gonna be just like a big gay flamboyant like show and i'm kind people of are just here thinking it. i mean <laughs> there's a lot of people thinking that um one of the characters from it's a sin is gonna get cast as the doctor which oh, i right. haven't seen it's a sin and i Neither don't know I. and i'm also like i almost don't care who gets cast as the doctor because as long as the writing's good and they write the character well then by all means i'm for as long it. as the so. actor is good but then to be fair i've heard so many good things about it's a sin and i really do I've heard want a lot to of good watch things. i mean they literally um, recreated um resurrection of the daleks's first dalek scene in it's a sin did they yeah was it it's a sin was it years and years i think it was it's a sin yeah right. yeah genuinely there's a i saw this i saw this thing and i was like I think I saw it on Twitter. It was just a whole clip of it, and it's literally I don't I don't know whether you were, whether I even shown you Resurrection of the Daleks, which is a Peter Davison story. Maybe. Um, right, the, the first Dalek scene is basically the Daleks latching like latching onto the ship, and there's all these people, all these guys. It's like a prison ship because Davros is on it, and um, they all like barricade this door. They pull down this big black screen, like a big door. They pull it down, they all take cover, and then the Daleks blow through the wall, and there's a little bit of a firefight. Some people die, some Daleks die, and then everyone sort of retreats. And they recreated that in It's a Sin, and I saw it pop up on Twitter, and I was like, A, if somebody's parodying this, mm. A, why? Why specifically this? Wait, and when B, you say they recreated it, do you mean like as if they were watching I think, it on it, TV? It's, it's or a sin like, like, I think it's a sin set in like the 80s anyway. Yeah, it's set during like the AIDS pandemic. I think it must that. be that the, the characters are cast in this show. Right. And yeah, so basically Russell took Resurrection of the Daleks and basically recreated that scene as closely as he could in It's Fair. a Sin. And Fair. I saw it on Twitter and was like, <laughs> I see at the time I didn't know it was Russell, yeah. but I was like, a, why why would you parody this specific scene? Because it's not exactly an iconic Doctor Who scene. No. But also, the effort gone through to make it look like it did, it's like, wow, that's wicked. I'll but have to yeah, watch anyway. It. It's been so, on my to watch list for a yeah. while. So so Russell coming back won't immediately you know, re-gay everything. Because no. in as much as there's a lot of sort of progressive undertones to the Russell era which we've spoken about a lot we'll continue to speak about because they're always present it's never so on the nose flamboyantly woke No, it, it, I, I feel like if you'd have aired Doctor Who from 2005 onwards today like first time you'd have people whinging about it being woke oh of course you would I mean it's like I said to you I said then people people con- Jesus can't get my words out people <laughs> constantly moan in this day and age that oh it's it's pc it's all so politically it's pandering it's like well it's not because i mean literally in 2007 you've got martha fighting the fact that shakespeare's calling her racial slurs and people say that it's pc you've got captain jack who's very blatantly i wouldn't say he's gay i think he's just pan pan um but it's yeah it's just one of those things it's like doctor who has always been on like trying to be as like progressive as possible. I wouldn't even say the, trying. It is. It's just progressive. Well, yeah, but you know what I mean. Like you know, back like, in I don't, sort I, of when it was first conceived in the nineteen sixties, it obviously wasn't quite as progressive back then. But well, then, you say as that, time evolved. Doctor Who has been progressive because the first producer of the show was a woman, and that was unheard well, of back in sixty three. Yeah, that's true. Verity Lambert. Um, so, no, what I was going to say was the only time that I felt the progressive stance fell a bit flat on his face was during uh bill 
and Capaldi when she was just every single episode in her script, it was written that she had to state she had was to gay. point out that she was gay. It's yeah, kind of that's, like, yeah, that's like, something I'm intrigued to look back on for series ten because that, as you say, without getting too much into it, that was something that annoyed me is mm-hmm. the fact that yes. Bill was a great character, liked her way more than I thought I would because her first like promo thing, which was just a chunk taken from the pilot, which was the first episode, what the first episode was called series 10. Yeah. And I thought, wow, she's really annoying. But uh-huh. in reality, I really liked it. But yeah, it was one of her big flaws, but that's more on, Ch- uh, Ch- oh, on Moffat's oh, part. Moffat. I was going to say that's um, more on Moffat kind of constantly writing it into a script. It's like, because there I, are ways to do it. Like how Dave, Russell T. Davies does it in this episode where he says to, uh, where the doctor says to Shakespeare and Martha, he goes, oh, there's enough time for flirting later. And Shakespeare goes, oh, is that a promise doctor? And he goes, oh, 57 academics just punched the air. It's like a joke like that because you are then sort of making a joke about how the academics like speculate that Shakespeare might have been bisexual and therefore they're making a joke. It's like, oh, look, he might have been bisexual. But it's like even like- even the Chibnall era, for all of its flaws, it's, it's inclusion and it's how progressive it's been has been really good. And yes, there have been things where it's fallen flat on its ass. I mean, when you said about the, an example specifically where I think that sort of commentary approach has gone a bit too far was, I, I thought you were going to talk about Orphan 55 or Praxius. Oh, no. Because obviously the narratives <laughs> of that let, fell very much into the trap of let's try and be a bit too... A bit too I feel common, like that was just Chibnall trying to be a bit clever. And it's, it's not even like, just Chibnall. Cause I don't think they were written... Orphan 55 wasn't written by him. And I don't oh, think no, Praxius it was written was by... I can't remember who. I can't remember the uh, name either. Dad, I, don't, I, I, know. I was listening to Nerd Cube's podcast, and he said that one the writer who wrote Orphan Fifty Five wrote another episode of something that was also really, really rubbish. And I was like, mm, why doesn't that surprise me that he wrote mm. Orphan Fifty Five then? But yeah, so yeah, I know we, we kind of got on this tangent a lot on this podcast about the sort of the woke, the the, the anti-woke army getting all up in arms about things. But yeah, it's always been present. And the fact that they did touch upon Martha's skin colour in this, and obviously it is brought up again and again, because at the end of the day, it would be. But they tackled it. they handle it well. They tackled it well, yeah, very much so. I mean, like I said, they could have done what they did in series 10 and just had some guy properly racially profiling Bill and the Doctor smacking him one. Mm. And then obviously there was a much more semi-hands-off approach in Rosa when when Ryan gets smacked and the Doctor just sort of takes a step back because it's like, you just got slapped by a white man as a black man mm-hmm. um, and I am a woman, or at least I appear female so I'm not going to get involved. If that were like Capaldi, it probably would have been a different story. I mean, if that were but, anyone, like... <laughs> yeah, but... But anyway... Yeah. That's that's how that was. But spe- speaking of speaking of uh, Martha specifically, I just want to put a really big date on this episode. Really big date. It's something that popped up to me that I hadn't. Again, I didn't remember her saying. And a very weird, um, a, a sort of strange thing to bring up. And that's uh, Martha asking whether the Doctor has a mini disc so she, they oh, could like yeah. film stuff. <laughs> Because back in 2007, that would have been the sort of days that, you know, mini disc was a thing. Well, I weren't MP3 players a thing back in 2007? MP3 players were definitely present. Uh, the iPod, I f- yeah, the iPhone came out in 2007. So the iPod was already out. So MP3 so, players were still present. But I think there were, I think the, the problem with it was, is obviously downloading music and, and people's access to the internet and having computers, even back then, um, that was still an interesting concept. So the idea of physical media was obviously still very much present. It'd be really interesting and to sit like a young person down in front of it now. And when she goes, we've got a mini disc or something. And they go, what's a mini disc? What's a mini disc? <laughs> I mean, admittedly, I think it almost feels like they've dropped that in to be like, this is like a, this is the next big thing. But mini disc fell flat on its ass. I only have two examples of mini discs being used in my daily life. Yeah. And do, do you do you have any? Did you ever use mini discs? No, I don't think I did because I wasn't a particularly tech interested child. Like my dad obviously worked in IT when we were younger, so he kind yeah. of had the newfangled. I remember <laughs> he came going slightly off the subject, but on the topic of computers and technology, when Windows ninety eight first came out. Um, or not long after it came out, Windows 2000, sometime around then, Dad was like, 
sorting out the computer in the living room and he was going oh this is going to make the pc boot much faster and as a kid i went what will it boot in like three seconds and dad went yeah it will and then it took still took like obviously an age and i went dad (laughs) this isn't three seconds you lied to me Wow. I just distinctly remember being so upset that the computer didn't boot in three seconds. Mate, I was excited when my dad upgraded the or got a new computer and it could turn itself off. Yeah. Back in the days when it came up with a big orange text saying you must you can now shut down your computer and have to turn the power button off yourself. Mate, that was mind blowing. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, mini discs were like I would say they're way ahead of their time. It was just a, a different format, but the difference with mini discs was they could store like metadata that could be displayed so like song titles and stuff like that whereas like a cd player at least back then unless you had a super duper one don't quote me on my my history of the knowledge of cd formats um couldn't or at least nothing that i had could so we had we had a back in 2007 time around that time we had a, a volvo xc90 a car still going very strong today uh, we used to have one of them like a big four by four and yeah. um in that car it had a mini disc player Ooh. alongside a cd player because it was no, a, it think... had like a it had like a little screen on the dashboard you know one of those ones that back in the day had been wow look at that massive screen it's got lo- so many pixels i see single color just mm-hmm. a basic printed lcd it was like wow this is wicked and beneath it had a mini disc player so it could play mini discs and i think my dad must have made maybe two or three mini discs because it was like well we've got cds you don't nobody releases music on a mini disc as far as i'm aware mini discs are like writable formats i think i must have held a mini disc at some point but i don't think i've ever actually like owned i always i always remember them being red or like a ready pink weird color yeah um so we had that and then we actually had an xc we had like the next generation xc90 afterwards and it just didn't you couldn't get it with the mini disc player because it had already died like that format was dead i mean i was just went kind of straight from tape cassette to cd and then from that point on it was just kind of like digital everything iPods. really yeah yeah i mean the only other the only other time i saw it in in play was um with my background of dance um in case you didn't know train dancer <laughs> hence why my username on twitter is so strange uh they're tap steps fun fact um my when i used to go and do competitions uh when i was growing up all the dance schools used to stick to things like cassettes because mm. they are so much more reliable they're, they're reliable than a cd because you scratch yeah. a cd it's gone yeah and when you're charging around doing dance competitions no one takes care of anything and tapes you can chuck around you can have tapes that you've absolutely buggered in the past you can just screw them all back in and bob's your uncle it works again cds you're screwed so yeah. we stuck to we stuck to cassettes like glue and there was one dance school there at my competitions that i used to go to in doncaster who did use mini discs so their entire wow. school had all of their music that they used for their dancers because somebody would go actually at this festival you would take your music with you to go on stage to to do your dance to perform mm-hmm. for the adjudicator and get and you know take part in the competition and you had to hand them your music for them to play it so it's like i would go to my teacher on the side of stage with my cassette this school would obviously go to the dressing room get all the dances that they needed all on mini discs wow. and i'm like i get i mean i'm i you know what, i'd be not? fascinated to know whether they're still using them now but i could just Probably very vividly remember not. seeing <laughs> yeah but they still like i said they still use cassettes they still use cassettes. I mean... Because my dance school is still stuck in the early noughties why? slash 90s. <laughs> like I said, reliability. Yeah, they sound but... like ass, but they're reliable. Yeah, but yeah that's true. Mini discs, immediately dating this uh, episode quite a bit. And I, I'd completely <laughs> forgotten that was even a thing. Um, so we're 25 minutes in and so far we've literally talked about two things. <laughs> we've talked about woke sh- and um mini discs, mini discs. <laughs> because i mean i you know after <laughs> looking on twitter and people have said like you know what you guys go off on these weird tangents and i think everyone's game for it i uh, mean it's virtually so, impossible not to like i if mean you try we, and is, stick to one topic it's yeah. kind of hard <laughs> we still talk about the episode but yeah. at the end of the day sometimes you just go off on a, on a tangent and talk rubbish and that's what podcasts are for we're here to talk rubbish let's talk about shakespeare shall we mm, yes i <laughs> Uh, mm. Mm. Dean Lennox Kelly. I said to you when he came on stage, I was like, he just looks like a prick, doesn't he? But he then does. I don't know he, if that's he looks because... like a he, he looks like that very self-centered, obnoxious character. And there's yeah. there's like an there's an essence of that in this Shakespeare, but obviously that subversion of the expectation of him coming out and going, Oh doth etc bollocks and whatever. Yeah. And obviously he goes he says shut your big fat mouths. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, he gads. And yeah. <laughs> with the fact that the doctor builds it up and goes, you know, this is going to be really good eloquence and everything. And he goes, ah, you're all balanced. Ah, yeah, basically. Or whatever. And that I, I've always enjoyed that. But as much as, as you say, he has got this, 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 Air of, <laughs> air, of, air of prickery. Air of prickery. It does sound like a, a title. Hello, the I'm air Amy. Of air prickery. of prickery. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm Shakespeare. Uh, the air of prickery. He is still a clever, mature character, and yeah. it's, just, it's such a. It's it's almost like they've taken both sides of how you would present that character and they just ran with both of them. Mm-hmm. They said, let's have this this juxtaposition of what you expect of being this very, very well-spoken, very uh, particular, very mature... Well-educated. I've already said that word, but the educated character. And instead, let's, let's throw in this roguish, like a Guy Ritchie-feeling Shakespeare. But actually, mm-hmm. let's, let's put them both together and do something with it because you like this character of Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, Whereas I feel if like they'd in played the first... it out, if if he were the heir of prickery, <laughs> you wouldn't like him. No, I feel like in the first few minutes he comes on, and you sort of think, oh, he's a bit of a dick, isn't he? Um, oh, especially with the way that. he kind of is mm. like flirting with the barmaid, and then all of a sudden Martha comes in and he's like, oh, hello. <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, great, we've got a little bit of a slut on our hands, have we? Um, hello. But then after that, you realise that actually that side of him is probably just a bit of a show and he's actually just trying to kind of cover up like as we discover after his son died um trying to cover up like the grief from dealing with that and he probably just puts on this kind of um persona that's the word i was looking for yeah he puts on this persona of this kind of like oh i'm gonna go around and sleep with all the women because i'm shakespeare and i'm gorgeous and i'm clever and and then really i think it kind of takes him meeting the doctor and establishing that back and forth with him to see that probably there's a bit more to things than just like this facade that he's got going on, which is why evidently he turns out to not be such a horrendous like personality as you think he's gonna be. Um, and yeah, you do end up liking it. And to be fair, it's pretty instantaneous. Like there isn't really a point in the episode where I think I don't like you. Um, mm. They maybe once upon a time there was when I was a bit younger and I didn't really understand the kind of approach and the character and but they somehow managed to deep like deep dive into Shakespeare's character without actually um what's the word I'm looking for I can never think of words uh (laughs) I'm no Shakespeare put it like that Um, (laughs) without kind of deconstructing his character or like too explicitly yeah um, yeah. But they don't actually deconstruct Shakespeare, Shakespeare himself. Like, did Shakespeare actually have a son that yes. died? Right, yeah. okay, fair enough. Um, I, again, don't know history. Because <laughs> it's a historical character, they apart from the obviously the, the super extraterrestrial stuff that's very much fictional, they, yeah. obviously Doctor has always tried to be, because it's accurate. still wearing that part of its, of its initial conception of being a historically accurate television show. Mm-hmm. Um, they still wear that. So, yeah, things like that you know did yeah. happen he did have a son called hamnet hamnet <laughs> uh that died at 11 years old did he so, write did shakespeare write hamlet is that what yes she, yeah right okay hence Fair. why martha was like ham hamnet what? yeah i mean i don't know he's master shakespeare i studied romeo and juliet which i really enjoyed i studied othello which i thought was boring I um, don't remember studying any Shakespeare at school, which is really bad because we probably did. <laughs> nah, well. But eh. we, uh, I, I mean, admittedly, I did technically do a study on Doctor Who when I was at school. I did a, a media, is that a mock exam? It might have been a mock exam, actually. Probably. And funnily enough, we uh, we watched a, a section from um, Last of the Time Lords at the end of series three. With the master and all the rockets and the doctor oh, cool. flying, can't have his cage. Yeah, yeah. We watched that and we had to analyze it. 
Fair. Um, and I'll talk more about that once we get to that episode. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was. As soon as it started, it was like, oh, it's Doctor Who. <gasps> oh <my> yes, <laughs> I know what I know this. Um, but yeah, so speaking of language, Steph has a question for us regarding language. Um, with all of Tennant's era, but this episode in particular, there's a huge focus on the power of words, and the dialogue is on point. Mm-hmm. What do you think Chibnall misses that means his dialogue just doesn't land as well? Talent. And there's one example. <laughs> oh, 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 oh! I think you know, you know when you know when you get a shiver like somebody stepped on your grave. That's just happened to Chibnall. Jesus, Amy! Wow. Stabbed him right through the heart. <laughs> You've got the DNA uh, replicator. No, um, I mean he's clearly got if some form of talent if he's made his way into well he's had his BBC moments and he did Broadchurch. so yeah well i mean yeah exactly so he's not not talented like but i think what were you gonna say you answer first because well, i need time to think <laughs> i think in a show as, as as um has so much momentum as doctor who it has its slower moments but then it's just always this this energy present unless it really has to be deliberately sucked out of a room but he's very good at managing to do that using his character's dialogue i mean bless him ryan for two series he's useless he I just mean, says he says nothing i feel like he just he points out the blatantly obvious and he, yeah. he contributes basically nothing ryan basically like, exists it, to be the episode's exposition doesn't he to be honest i mean so does everyone but there's literally that's a, it's a really good question Steph because this episode in particular and I don't know whether this has come up because you've watched it again and thought oh actually it's the scene when the doctor's working out why there's 14 sides of the um, of the globe mm-hmm. theater because he's bouncing off other characters and I think that's what keeps the momentum moving so you stay with it more whereas if it were Chibnall writing that scene for Jodie it, the camera would be focused on Jodie and just Jodie and she's being you no know, she's given a whole list of things to go through in her script a load of dialogue and she's just told to go along with it and just have to do something hence why so many of her scenes of her working stuff out being expositional all sound the same because Mm -hmm. i feel like she's been thrown in the deep end and she's gone right here's like here's a page of dialogue go and it's like jody's a good actress which is probably not that good like even david when he when he goes off on when he goes off on one like and he's he's saying like i know 14 shapes number sides ah like you, and then somebody else jumps in, sort of restarts the, his his sort of train of thought. Not especially train of thought, but his sort of like um, his window for dialogue. Whereas uh-huh. Jodie gets through about a quarter of what she needs to say, and she's lost us mm-hmm. because everything's just focused on her. Whereas in this, it's bouncing between the Doctor and Shakespeare, the Doctor and Martha, the Doctor and Shakespeare, then Martha, then Shakespeare, then the Doctor and whatever. It just keeps on moving, and, and all the stuff that is explained. Like if you, if for example, you took one of Jodie's. Um, one of those scenes of her working something out yeah, and then just extracted the, the base bullet points of this is what's been explained this is what we now understand and so on and you put it next to one of tenants you'd have the same amount out of it but the, the scene would A probably be shorter yeah. and B would probably feel shorter because every single facet of that scene the set the other characters in the room the camera work for goodness sake it's the pacing as well it all leads into how well that kind of stuff is actually portrayed Mm -hmm. whereas with like hence why the scene in war of the santarans with the doctor lecturing the general and mrs seacole that felt worked so so well because it felt like a russell t davies era it did explanation exposition dump because it Uh jumped between other people and it kept things snappy like a lot of chibnall stuff and again I don't think it's on Jodie Whittaker per se because I think she's given a bunch of dialogue and gone and said go, yeah, off you go, get this across to the viewer in as the most interesting way possible. And she on the spot literally does the noise she does anyway, which is ah, mm-hmm. and just goes on with it. That's why the dialogue works so well during this era because every every single thing is being used. But it feels like Chibnall falls into that trap that again we'll cover this when we get to that era that Moffat falls into so much with the Doctor. And I saw a clip of a Capaldi doctor and was Mm -hmm. like, this is something I genuinely despise about the doctor during that era is the fact that doctor's so good. Yeah. During the end. And they just have to lead into the fact that doctor's so good. Not even at the end. It was, it was probably omnipresent from about series six onwards. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's touched upon in time Lord victorious in uh, waters of Mars. But otherwise, you know, there's just this, there's this expectation for the doctor to just be good. Like how, Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock is just mm-hmm. good. 
And I think a lot of that probably leaked into Moffat's era of Yeah, who, I mean, Moffat's obviously it. writes Sherlock, doesn't he? So that's going to be like Hence a why big... series six and seven had gaps in them so they could go and make Sherlock yeah, in the process. Yeah. Um, see, I think my answer to that question would be that, like, Chibnall has grown up alongside a lot of Doctor Who. He said himself that he used to be a fan of the show when he was a kid. There's literally a clip of him on TV criticising it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which he's he been absolutely ripped to shreds for. It's like, <laughs> you yeah, criticising Doctor Who, don't think that's okay. Um, People in glass houses. Yeah, but um, it's... I think the problem with Chibnall is that he's not trying to understand what makes a good episode of Doctor Who I think he's trying too hard to fit too much in to basically every episode he's ever written um I think if you look at the episodes that guest writers have written for Chibnall's era which tend to be the better ones like Rosa and Demons of the Punjab and um, the most recent episode, The Angels. The Haunting of Villadia Darty and uh, yeah. Yeah, Maxine Alderton. The Village yeah. of Angels, that kind of thing. It's all guest writers who have written other kind of horror-y, sci-fi-y, but also like historical text or like TV shows, that kind of thing. So one of the writers for one of the really good episodes of Chibnall's Era was a soap writer. Now, I personally don't think that soaps are a particularly good form of TV. I think they're a bit trash. I think they're a bit cringe. They work for some people, but, but they're very so much popular, not for us. So obviously yeah. you've got to have talent to be able to write that kind of day-to-day, life-goes-by script. Um, but I think Chibnall just tries to do too much because he's trying to be the Doctor Who writer that he was a fan of when he was a kid he's trying to be too russell he's trying to be too moffat and he's not really looking at it and thinking right what would make the pacing of this episode work and i think what russell does so well that moffat kind of doesn't in places and chibnall definitely doesn't is russell kind of writes his episodes more like character studies i mean we've discussed this a lot in the past with uh, episodes um, like Boomtown and is it Boomtown? Yeah, and Girl yeah. in the Fireplace. Yeah, they're very much character studies, but they've got this kind of basic plot that goes underneath them. But I think that's why they work so well and why the writing hits a lot better because he's not trying to squeeze in too much plot. Because the problem is, you can't have a balance of everything, you can't have like lots of plot and lots of good dialogue. You kind of have to have like a middle ground on either on both sorry and that's why like this episode works so well because the plot is literally go to 1599 london realize there's witches try and stop the witches that's the whole plot of this episode yeah but it that's all it needs to be because you have enough detail in there of shakespeare who shakespeare is the people in the madhouse who they are why the witches are who they are like the power of words and that's the kind of character elements that you get in russell's writing like with it's a sin and tv shows that he's done since then that are so well written because he he focuses more on who the people are and not what they're doing whereas chibnall i mean i'm not being funny right but somebody said i can't remember who it was but somebody said that in the most recent episode we've learned more about claire than we have about yaz and yaz has been the longest running companion of new who let just just let that sink in for a minute. Yaz has been on the show for longer than Rose was, longer than Martha was, longer than Donna, longer than Bill, longer than Clara. And what do we know about her? She's a police officer, but barely. What else do we know about her? Not a lot. She tried to run away once. Oh, great. Boo-hoo. Like, it kind of is like... Don't get me wrong, I have sympathy and all that, but I don't know enough about Yaz. We didn't know bloody sod all about ryan apart from the fact that he couldn't climb a ladder and yeah very very temp uh temperate dis- temperate what's the word uh are you okay you broke I'm, tr- I'm really bad at words today not good for when you're on a podcast temperamental um, dyspraxia that's yeah, the word but like it was it because sometimes he was fine and he could shoot a bomb through a basketball hoop from like three miles away but couldn't look at things straight 
or something. I don't know. Like, their characters just aren't fleshed out because all Chibnall tries to focus on is the action of Doctor Who and not the people of Doctor Who. I wouldn't even say it's necessarily the action. I I think, after you were saying that about how he writes, I mean, I I can't speak for you specifically, but I know I have, and I'm sure people who are listening have always drummed up ideas as to what they would do as a their own Doctor Who episode. If they had the ability to write an episode of Doctor Who genuinely, what would they do? And if you're coming up with original concept or coming up with some kind of follow-up, because, I mean, if it were up to me, I would write some kind of sequel to Remembrance of the Daleks because I love it so much, or just revitalise the Dalek Civil War, which mm-hmm. was kind of touched upon in Revolution of the Daleks. But anyway... I find myself coming up with a concept, an idea, and having to justify each and every facet of it, which I think is why uh, Chibnall's writing sometimes leans so much into having to explain stuff because it feels like he needs to make sure that everyone knows why he's doing what he's doing, so people can't question it. Yeah, and I can. And I from a, a um, big as much as I'm not, as much as I'm not a writer, at least not in that sense, I can write scripts and stuff like well, YouTube scripts. And yeah. admittedly, I've written I've written plays before. I say plays. I've done theatre stuff. Amateur plays. Yeah, amateur theatre. I can understand why he sort of does what he does, because if I've ever conceived an idea for a show, uh, for an episode or a character to introduce into an episode, I, I, you know, as much as when you write a character, you need to write a whole backstory for them, Mm. even if that never gets, like, told in certain depth but if somebody asked you something about that character or something happened in the show to that character you had the 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 character's own personal bible to refer back to so it always feels like you do need to write you you do need to to flesh out certain decisions certain settings certain creatures certain motivations Mm. to, to to make them feel justified in the story you're trying to tell and it feels like a lot of that ended up on the script on the page alongside the other ideas that Chibnall had because he yeah. felt like he needed to prove to the Doctor Who fan base that he knew what he was doing. And I think See, that is his downfall. I think part of it as well is the fact that he has never write, uh, blimey, Writed. Blimey, English. I was going to say written. Um, he's never written for children. Whereas Russell had, Moffat had, like all the people that have done New Who before Chibnall have written for children now i'm not saying that doctor who is a children's show it is a family show i do dislike that people call it a children's show my point is is that russell and moffat have the experience of what appeals to the wider audience including children so there are nods that you can make to the kids that the kids will get there are nods you can make to the adults that the adults will get but generally everything is on a kind of medium ground which everyone of any age will understand I feel like the problem with Chibnall having never written for kids is the fact that he doesn't understand how to write for kids. And so he's gone too much the other way, tried too hard to explain everything, kind of like you were saying, he feels like he needs to justify everything. But does he feel like he needs to justify everything for the fandom or does he feel like he needs to justify everything so that the kids understand what's going on? I feel like or that also doesn't everything help. for himself. Exactly. Because he's basically trying to protect all angles, but also have like, oh, kiddie winkies, did you understand what happened in that episode? Yeah, because Yaz and Ryan bloody explained it all. Like, whereas the sort of people our age who grew up on New Who with Russell and Moffat not explaining everything. You know, Russell explained enough, but I feel like you don't need that exposition to understand what's going on. Like, I know that we're not really talking about the most recent episodes and stuff, but she sonic a rock. You didn't need to sonic a rock. You could have just looked at the rock and the broken window and understood that a rock was thrown through the window. Like, that's the kind of bit where i feel like chibnall was like oh we need to get the sonic out because the kids like the sonic and it's kind of yeah, like it's why? been we can sell more sonic screwdrivers because who would buy one of those Lit- yeah i have one. The, the only sonic i don't have actually is um capaldi's yeah that's yeah i should i feel like i should have one probably because you've got eccleston slash david's yeah and um, i've got matt's you've got matt's and i've got jody's but I don't have. I think I've got it right here, actually. I do. <laughs> Mine are somewhere. They're in a drawer somewhere. But anyway, yeah. So that's uh, so Steph. Yeah, that was a, a very very good question, and it tied in very nicely to something I was going to bring up anyway regarding that scene with uh, mm-hmm. 
the Doctor working out why the Globe Theatre is shaped as it is. And that was our, you know, that, thank you for coming into our TED Talk about <laughs> scripting, our scripting masterclass. Mm. And um, From we, as I, not as, writers. As I said in my uh, in, a, in an episode of Ups and Downs for one of the episodes of Series 12, it must have been, I mentioned about how my script writing um, tutor, or at least one of my tutors at uni who was a script writer through and through, basically, if I remember rightly, don't quote me on this, and please don't take this as fact if you are going into script writing, um, that you could basically take out every other line of a script and it would still read the same, or it still would get across the same idea because you're, you'd are almost overwrite yeah. and then take stuff out, whereas Chibnall just feels like he put that straight in. Yeah, and like, that's yeah, kind of why I've written I this down him. and just it all ended up in the episode. And the thing that I found funny when I put that episode of, of Ups and Downs out is that loads of people in, my, in the comments on Who Culture were like, Yo, are you talking about Clifton? Because they knew what university I went to yeah. and they potentially do that course now. And they go, he's talking about Clifton. Hello, mm-hmm. Clifton. I know you're not listening. Unless you are, <laughs> in which case, hi. Um, Hello, if any of yeah. our old uni tutors are listening, lol, look where we ended up. <laughs> <laughs> I see a traction logo on the wall in my uh, in the uh, the basement of the Ellen Terry building in Coventry that says like, look, Rich went to go work for traction. <laughs> <laughs> and Amy yeah. didn't do anything with her degree because yeah. she sucks. <laughs> Well, I didn't want to say it, but no. okie dokie then. Lol. I don't <laughs> suck. I just, uh, no. You don't suck. Anyway. It's okay. Let's not talk about um, Amy's, you know, existential crisis. Let's what? talk about Doctor <laughs> Who. Um, I was going to say something and I can't remember what it was. Um, uh, da, 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 da. It was something We're good at this about, today, aren't we? Yeah. It was something about, um, yeah, no, it's gone. I think it was regarding the guy in the mental hospital and how well that was handled. Um with I really liked the way that the doctor kind of went into his mind and like kind of backtracked on himself, if that makes sense. I don't know what I'm saying. How about we just forget I said we didn't carry on. Yeah, I, I was completely lost there. <laughs> I was basically gonna say that the like we haven't up to this point seen much of the doctor using his abilities to kind of go into other people's minds, have well, we? Well he uses it on um Renette yeah. in Madame yeah, Conquer. Yeah. But that's kind of the only instance of it we've seen. Like, isn't And it, it is quite good that they use it quite sparingly. I mean, it happened most recently in Village of the Angels and it happens in um, Orphan 55 as well, but we mm-hmm. don't see it tons. It's almost something you forget the Doctor can do. That was kind of one but... thing that I disliked about um, Matt Smith's Doctor, the way Moffat wrote it, is the fact that he was going around headbutting people. I know that Matt Smith's Doctor was supposed to be a bit more comical because that's when the American audience started kind of like tuning into it and that's the kind of humour that maybe they gel a bit more with but it's also kind of like I don't understand why you had to take that gentler side of the Doctor and make it comical like I really like the fact that Chibnall has brought it back to being purely a sort of means to communicate quite sparingly it is this maturity yeah and that's what i've always respected about the 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 russell era with that with the character of the doctor and even down to like the doctor's theme mm-hmm. when you listen to the doctor's theme in the in the russell era because obviously nines and tens doctor theme were the same yeah it was that you know that falsetto ooh all the mm-hmm. time i'm not gonna do it now but yeah ooh, no <laughs> no not that one um and i love that it left that really that that mysterious side to the doctor and as much as obviously it became as you say the sort of action hero mm-hmm. feeling with with matt smith's i am the doctor theme song which is obviously iconic at this yeah. point but it was horrendously overplayed and yeah this is something i'm going to do i would i would talk about more in depth when it comes around to talking about russell's era uh, maybe you should YouTube. do a youtube channel like a youtube maybe video should do a, diving into the youtube channel doctor who and how it um, maybe i should how maybe it evolves. i should yeah like I think that'd why, be quite interesting. Why it was good Murray Gold was replaced. That is yeah. blasphemy to some people, but I was quite happy that, M- that Murray Gold was replaced with uh, with Sega Nakanola. I mean, to a point. Bless him. And it, may I, not, like, it may not be down to Murray Gold's decisions. Obviously, where the music goes in the episode and how much it's used is not necessarily not up to him. his choice, probably. But yeah, he did mm-hmm. do it for, what, about 12 years? Yeah. 12, 13 years of Doctor Who. I mean, Who, he's that's, a fantastic composer. Like, absolutely incredible. I mean, his I mean, early stuff was definitely better than his newer stuff. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, as we said, not 
a hu- in, in terms of plot, excuse me, hiccup, in terms of plot, not a huge amount really happens. But because of the character study of, of Shakespeare and exploring the Doctor and Martha, obviously that scene in the hotel room where Martha's very much like the, she's giving him the Hakuna Matata's eyes. Always yeah. have to go with that. And the Doctor's just talking about Rose and Martha gets really stroppy. Yeah, I think I, you said like Martha's got no right to get stroppy I think about that. it was, yeah, because she was doing the whole, we're here in the same bed alone. And it's like Martha, like he's literally trying to work out a mystery. You need to give him a minute. You're not going to have sex with him. Sorry, but you're not. Um, and when he's like Rose would know and she gets all stroppy it's like I lit- I think I said something like oh give over Martha you don't have the right to get stroppy because she yeah, doesn't you've just, you've just met him you've you want to rail him you've just like, met him it's as if you've met this 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 hot bloke at a party you both or you're like he's just out of a relationship mm-hmm. he's still trying to get over it and you're trying to do him yeah. There's no surprise, and if he's if he's not exhibiting signs of hell yeah I'm game for this as like a rebound or I'm game for this you don't push it. No, and the thing is, I mean, it's I know that she even... she doesn't necessarily. It's not that she's like mounting him and no. just getting on with it, but still. But she's really like, and the thing is, it's not even like the guy at the party has just broken up with his girlfriend. It's like she's literally gone, like gone, and he thinks he's never gonna see her again. Like she's, as far as we're concerned, she's dead. So like, it's like if somebody had just lost their partner, you wouldn't try to be like, oh, how dare you not want to kiss me? Like you've literally known the guy for not even 12 hours, I would imagine at this point. And yet suddenly you're all over him. It's like, this this is the only thing that infuriates me about Martha's character is the fact that Russell, and I know we've kind of dived into the reason why Russell probably did it before was probably to give the Doctor more of that grieving period to show that maybe he wasn't just going to bounce from companion to companion. It's almost to, companion. to really hammer home that he's not okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also just to hammer home the fact that he's not just going to be falling in love with everybody he meets. Um, but yeah, it's it's the only thing that I always look at Martha and I think, oh, for God's sake, just get over yourself, girl. <laughs> well, that's something that is going to be interesting going forward in this series because I know that obviously is referenced very, very explicitly at the end of the series about that you know, quote-unquote thing yeah. between Martha and the Doctor. But I don't, like, apart from obviously how she's sort of swept off her feet in Smith & Jones and how there's that scene in the in the tavern in whatever um, between the two of them, I don't recall there being... I mean, I, mean, I say all that much about it. Obviously, later on in the series, towards the end, when... Um, the doctors talk about how it's like, oh, you know, someone you know, you're looking right at them and they just can't see you. Mm-hmm. And she looks at Jack and Jack goes, you to her. Like, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to point to see how many more times that comes up, but it's obviously because it's such an omnipresent thing about the character that it's become that thing that we associate her with. But I'm hoping that looking through this series, because I've always liked Martha personally. Oh, yeah, I don't dislike her. Going through the series, we don't, it's almost not as omnipresent as we thought. I might be wrong. Because it's no. been, you know, the beauty of this rewatch is, is obviously we've stopped ourselves from watching any class, any any new who mm-hmm. when we're doing this podcast. I've been back and watched loads of classic stuff, but not anything new who again, just mm-hmm. for the sake of, oh, let's go watch, you know, Stolen Earth and Journey's End again, because I, I quite like those episodes as like comfort episodes. But we'll get but there eventually. We'll get there eventually. But yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how, how that plays yeah i'm hoping that on. on this rewatch i actually like martha's character a bit more because i never disliked her particularly but she was never somebody that i looked at and thought yes i enjoy her as a companion whereas i think i actually kind of do when i watch her it's just these little tidbits like in between that like are a little bit like oh come on really um but again that's not particularly martha's fault obviously that's just you know that's the way the cookie crumbles and all that jazz. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm hoping that on this rewatch that because we're kind of looking into the characters and analysing a little bit compared to just passively watching that I might actually think, oh, actually, okay, Martha's character deserves a hell of a lot more credit than she gets. Um, whereas I somehow don't think the same will be said for Clara. Lol. <laughs> yeah that's that's gonna be one that i'm more intrigued to pick apart and yeah I, I it's one of those things where i'm hoping that either i can change my mind on martha or i can further re-justify why i didn't like her and mm. why i still don't like her and you wait know, did maybe you discussing say it you might just said martha do you mean clara clara sorry i was gonna say you've just established you liked martha <laughs> sorry i thought i said clara no. i'm rubbish at this um 
but yeah, so Shakespeare Code is a it's a good episode, honestly. It's almost one of those ones you can't really it's not it's a good episode, it's a memorable one. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 like it's like it's not one to that's you'd write home about, but it's also not one that you would like overlook. Yeah, it's not it's, one it's sort that... of there, but it's not it's it's like a hidden gem. You go back and watch it and go, actually, yeah, this is actually really yeah. good. I think if I was skipping through Doctor Who on a streaming service, it probably wouldn't be one that I would think, oh yeah, I must go back and watch that episode. But if I was watching it through, like as we are now, I wouldn't skip it. Like, so it's kind of in two camps. It's kind of like the, it's good, but it's not incredible. Like there are certain episodes of Doctor Who that I go back to all the time. Like Amy's Choice is my absolute, like probably my favourite ever Doctor Who episode. Um, Yeah. And like, you know, things like that, that I sort of think, oh yeah, that's a really good episode. I'll go back and watch that one. Um, This probably wouldn't be one of them, but like I said, I also wouldn't skip it on a rewatch. So. Yeah, that's fair. Mm. But yeah, I think, actually no, before I I wrap up, uh, Queen Victoria. Queen Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth (laughs) I rocking up and, you know, that, that. that. Whether that was something that was planned, I'm assuming not. It almost feels like that was written in as probably as a just joke. a joke to be like, there's... And the fact that obviously Shakespeare just laughs mm-hmm. at the fact that Elizabeth I is like, Doctor, my enemy. And the Doctor's like, wait, Ma- what? Time to go. <laughs> um, and I think that I think they could, have, they could have honestly gotten away with that as a big joke. And I don't think any... Because it was all played off as a joke. I don't think people would be like... And tearing their hair out like mm-hmm. what happened between the two because we don't know we need to know it's like no you don't but it took what six years for that question to be, to be answered, answered as to what that was and obviously we're not going to spoil it but that so was good. i love that they've gone back and and put that in whether that was something that moffat kept in mind to just do something well, with did or whether russell have a hand russell in didn't... writing the no no he didn't no it was oh, okay. written by moffat fair enough I mean, I say that behind the scenes, I don't know. I mean, because Russell D. Davies and Stephen Moffat are obviously very good friends mm-hmm. and they do sort of banter each other off on Instagram quite a lot. So yeah. it's like they are friends. So they might have, you know, with, with Moffat writing for David, they probably did. He, they did. They must have conversed about it and stuff like that. So yeah. maybe, I don't know, but it's just, a, it's a neat little detail that you kind of forget about. And then when it comes back into play in Day of the like, Doctor, oh, you go, that's oh, why Queen okay. Elizabeth hates it. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. It's mm. it's such a cool little thing. And I always forget that that happens. And as soon as they're running, going, she's here. It's like, oh my god, it's this bit. So, a lot to like in uh, in uh, Shakespeare the Shakespeare Code. Code, especially Christina Cole. So, who the, the 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 hot witch? The witch. Okay. Yeah, and that's 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 the main. I one. said to you, I didn't I? I was like, huh, they probably couldn't uh, afford prosthetics for three of them at all times during the uh, show so they just went oh we'll just leave the hot one without the one I was going to say it's like why Why would you get like <laughs> such an attractive actress and be like yeah let's stick it behind prosthetics the whole time uh-huh. admittedly they put um, I can never say her name right she played the Rani in Sarah Jane Adventures and played the uh, the the queen of the um, the Scythra in uh, the Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror oh yeah she's very very hot and dating I mean, Sasha Dwan, fun fact. It's like Angie, Mah- An- Angie Mahindra, something like that. I'm not I'm, even going to try. I cannot pronounce her name. But either way, it's like, yeah, let's get someone really hot. Just stick up by those prosthetics. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. But. Yeah, why not? Anyway, so that was the Shakespeare Code. And next up is Gridlock. We're going back to New New I World. Like the Doctor's Gridlock. very much not over Rose because he's like, let's go back to this place. Admittedly, there is a reason why. Uh-huh. He doesn't just take her back on a jolly, but... And also featuring a, an enemy that obviously back in the day, because it was a, a semi, I say semi unknown, it wasn't an, an iconic enemy, but a, a second Doctor enemy comes back mm-hmm. in that, which, you know, was something that I didn't really realise. I remember quizzing my parents about, hey, do you remember there being a woman stretched across a frame <laughs> in classic Doctor Who? And they were like, nope. Nope. <laughs> so, you know, giant crabs. <laughs> Who knew? Anyway, that's going to be next time as we head back to New New York for Gridlock. Wait. And you get to look at David Tennant cuddling some kittens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cute but overload. If if you've got any questions regarding Gridlock, then please do send them to us on Twitter at Casterpod, K-A-S-T-E-R-P-O-D. It's in the description of the podcast that you're listening to right now or in the description of the video if you're watching the video version because they're back. 
Because we put them on like YouTube three, now. They take like three hours to render, so you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, send us your questions on Twitter. But speaking of Twitter and social media, Amy Pass, where can they find you? You can find me at Ames underscore Elizabeth on if you go basically all social media except for the fact that I don't really use Twitter that much. So Instagram's yeah. probably the best. As and you find say. me. You can find me on Twitter at PickupChangeToe. If you are, if you do find the Casterpod account, our names are actually added in the bio now, which I didn't do before. But they're there now as well. Genius. And if you are, and that's the same for Instagram as well. If you want to find me on Twitch, because I'm streaming on Twitch again, I've been I'm back on it finally after a, quite a spotty sort of few months because of work and mental health and stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm on Twitch at Rich's Live. So why not come along and say hi? I'm playing Two Point Hospital at the moment and it's, it's it's hilarious. I love it. But um, yeah, that is that. Thank you all very much for listening. We will see you next time in Gridlock. Until we see you again, take care of yourselves. We'll see you next time. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.